0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and beginning at the first verse. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you, should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other, and in fact, You do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. And now for the second reading, we turn back in the Church Bibles to page 969, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 27, and that's on page 969. Jesus taught his disciples, saying, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell.
1: Work, sex, and death. Three subjects that dominate our lives. Work because we spend so much time doing it. Sex because we spend so much time thinking about it and death because we spend much of our lives trying to avoid it. And those three subjects, work, sex and death, are the issues of 1 Thessalonians chapter four. Death comes in the second half of the chapter and we'll look at that next week. So this week, we're thinking about sex and work or more precisely, how we can please the Lord in sex and work. Look at chapter four and verse one with me. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are now living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more how to please God. It should be the great desire for every Christian. Let's be clear here so that we don't misunderstand things. This is not a desperate attempt to please God in order to try to get into God's good books. You know, let's desperately try and live a certain way so that God will accept us. That is not what is going on at all. No, this is a thankful response to the fact that Jesus has died for us, as we will remember when we take bread and wine in a moment. Jesus has died for us, so that our name is written into God's good book of life. And so this is about out of thankfulness for all that he has already done for us, we want to please him. And the Thessalonian Christians were pleasing him. Verse one, they were already living a life that pleased the Lord. As we saw back in chapter one, verse seven, in many ways, they were a model church, a terrific example to the churches in the entire region of Macedonia and Achaia. They were living as Paul has instructed them when he was with them, as he says in chapter four, verse two. But verse one, this is still an encouragement to keep living the Christian life more and more because we never arrive in the Christian life and because we need constant encouragement to be living as we should, especially when it comes to the subject of sex and work, especially when it comes to the subject of sex. There's no suggestion, you see, when you read 1 Thessalonians that the uh, Christians in this church were, uh, in, involved in gross sexual misconduct. You can read 1 Corinthians, and they were definitely doing that. But there's no suggestion of that in 1 Thessalonians. Verse one, they were living in order to please God. So I would suggest the prevailing culture of the day was bombarding them with the temptation to live quite differently. And for that reason, they needed to be encouraged to live more and more as they should. Uh, it's very similar in our culture today. We live in a sexed, sex sex soaked society Uh, in every area in entertainment in news in personal living uh, so often sex is the issue I i don't think a week goes by without sex hitting the news headlines most recently it's the aid sector and the sickening revelations that displaced refugee women were only given aid in exchange for sex And of course, uh, is it the Oscars this week or next week? Um, Hollywood still reeling from the alleged accusations of sexual misconduct by Harvey Weinstein. Uh, We continue to hear news of uh, historic uh, child abuse in Rotherham, in football, and of course in the church. I see one way and another, sex features in the news every week. And it's in our face when it comes to entertainment, so unless you are very careful in researching everything you watch, it's hard not to find yourself confronted on the TV or at the cinema with a bedroom scene. And if you love reading, quite unexpectedly, you'll find yourself confronted in novels with words that are unnecessarily uh, gratuitous and written to titillate, and news and entertainment, and of course in our personal life, sex is a major issue. So as people pour out their hearts to me in in my study, they tell me of the unfaithfulness of their spouse or of themselves or of their struggle with pornography and single people tell me of the pain of missing out on the intimacy of another person. My point is this, it's all around us all the time and even if a church family is largely living as we should, this is an area where the voices we hear every day in and around us, are saying something quite different to what the Bible says and so we need to be strengthened and encouraged to live as we should more and more. Keep going. It seems to me that's exactly what was going on in Thessalonica. So in a sex-soaked society, chapter four, verse one, we need to be urged and encouraged to live as we should more and more. And in a world where work and career dominates so much of our time and directs so many of our decisions, where work and career Often defines us wrongly, but it defines us. We need to be constantly encouraged to live as we should in the workplace as well. Well, first, then, uh, be holy in sex, the first point on the handout, verses three to eight. And I use that word holy because that's the word that dominates this section. Indeed, it all, all of this flows from the prayer that we looked at at the end of chapter three, verses 11 to 13. Uh, look back with me at chapter three, verse 13. May he, God, strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. It's a prayer to be holy so that we will be ready when Jesus returns one day. And then as we read chapter four, verses three to eight, holy is a dominant word. And verse three, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. That is a word of holiness. Uh, verse four, Each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honourable. Over the page, verse seven, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And verse eight, therefore he he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This then is all about holiness and particularly holiness in sex. A sexually holy life Pleases the Lord. It's all about pleasing the Lord. See chapter four, verse three. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. I haven't got time to show you why I've defined it that way. Uh, That's a definition that comes right through the Bible. If you want to chase this up, then uh, this time last year, February and March last year, uh, I uh, preached seven sermons on sexuality, uh, they were preached in the evenings and uh, the link to the first one is on the, uh, on the bottom of the handout there and then you'll be able to see why I've defined this the way I have. Sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. So, verse three, avoiding sexual immorality is God's will for all Christians and I think that needs to be underlined even, even in a church like this because in the past 25 years or more of pastoral ministry, people have sat in my study and told me that it is God's will for them to leave their husband or wife for another person. Uh, You see, here they are involved in an adulterous affair and they tell me that they love this other person so much and that that love feels so good, it must have come from God and so he must want them to be together and so it must be God's will for them to be together. People have said that in my study. That's kind of the logic. I mean, it's illogical, but it's the logic they follow and so they're gonna leave their spouse. Look, verse three is very clear. God's will is that you and I should be sanctified and that means avoiding all sexual immorality. It is never God's will for you to leave your spouse for another person. It's God's will for us to be sanctified. And to be sanctified, to avoid sexual immorality, means being self-controlled. This comes in verse four. Let me read from verse three. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body. Self-control is the first step to avoid to avoiding sexual immorality. Let me explode the myth that uh, people try to tell me again, people say this in my study the myth that they just fell in love with someone who wasn't their spouse. Now please, that, that just does not happen. So I think of the office affair long before the embrace or the kiss at the office Christmas party, long before the secret meetings, there are a whole series of steps where self-control would have brought the whole thing to a grinding halt. Because it begins in the mind. You look at your colleague and find them attractive. You find yourself on the way to work looking forward to seeing them. Your day is lifted when they walk into the office. Those are some of the uh, signals, the danger warnings, by the way. And it's then that you try to get to know them better. But self-control could stop it there and make it go no further. Get a grip in your mind. When you don't get a grip in your mind, then there's the arm on the shoulder, then the pulling up of the chair to sit next to them to look at some figures together and to see if you might get away with your thighs touching. No, be self-controlled. And then there's the going to the pub for a drink with everyone in the office after work. Nothing wrong with that, except you're only going because she's gonna be there too. And then you find a reason to work late when she's working late, so you'll be alone in the office together. Nothing actually has happened yet. But of course, now's the time when the deceit and lies begin. You tell your wife that you'll be home late because you have to work late or because you're going with your colleagues to the pub. And what you say is technically true, you are working late and you are going to the pub, but in truth, it's terribly deceitful. And you're not only deceiving your wife, but you even deceive yourself. You say to yourself, I'm not lying, I am working late. Look, the point of all this, at any stage before anything has happened, self-control can head it off. That's verse four. And it's not only true of the, the affair, it's true when it comes to pornography as well, self-control. I raise the issue because porn is such a problem of enormous proportions. It is a pandemic in society at large and for the Christian too. In this excellent book, Captured by a Better Vision, um, Tim Chester gives these frightening statistics. 50% of Christian men are addicted to porn and 20% of Christian women. So in a church our size, admittedly there's not as many people here today as there would normally be, but in a church our size, over the three services, I reckon that means 200 men and 100 women are struggling with pornography. It is a huge problem. And please, we're not just talking about single people here. Married men and women are looking at porn and it's wrecking marriages. And for single people, it is wrecking future marriages. And it leaves people paralysed with guilt now, not to mention the sheer waste of time. (laughs) Tim Chester reckons that people waste hours and hours spending time searching for and then watching porn, hours and hours a week. Now look, if you're caught up in a destructive cycle of watching porn, you need help. Let me um, encourage you to get hold of a copy of this book. Uh, Vaughan Roberts has just written this book, The Porn Problem. uh, In fact, a member of the congregation has donated a number of the of these uh, of copies of this for the church family to take for free. They are over in the church um, uh, over in the church centre on the left as you go through the doors. Of course, some of you won't feel you can take a copy. You don't want to be seen with a copy. If you're married, you certainly don't want to see your husband or wife seeing you with a copy. Get it as an e-book. Again, I've put the link on the bottom here so you can get it. You need help if you're watching porn regularly or at all, you need serious help. And um, I don't want to reduce it simply to you being self-controlled. That is part of the problem. The bigger motivation is to be so captured by love for Jesus that you'll want to please him. Both these books deal with that very helpfully. Of course, that is exactly what this passage is about wanting to please the Lord. And if you do want to please him, then exercise self-control. First he grabs your heart and then you'll want to do the right thing. So when you're tempted to click on that uh, you know, thing that popped up from nowhere, be self-controlled. Don't click on it. Verse four, learn to control your own body. It's very interesting. Last night, Caroline went to bed early. I was watching the, the telly. Uh, it was uh, just turning 10 o'clock and uh, BBC Two was on. I was waiting for the news, actually, BBC One. I think it came on at 10.15. Anyway, BBC Two, and I don't know what the programme was because I wasn't planning to watch it anyway, but something came up, and the announcer said something like, um, uh, you know, it's going to be this this programme next, and there will be explicit scenes in it. There's my chance. Self-control, turn it over. In his uh, research for this book, Captured by a Better Vision, Tim Chester interviewed many Christians who were or who had struggled with porn and he quotes uh, many of them uh, in the book and uh, he he writes this. We need to get into the habit of saying, no, the moment tempting thoughts arise, I think that in the past, concedes Duane, I failed because when temptation came, I always flirted with it a little, fooling myself into thinking I could be strong by myself. I didn't flee temptation and I didn't run to God for help. Self-control then is a huge part of being sexually pure with the aim of, end of verse four, living in a way that is holy and honourable. Now I love that word honourable. Over the years, I've had the privilege of reading the Bible one-to-one with some very godly young men. And when some of them have started dating, they've asked me to pray for them to be holy. And when they do, I encourage them to be honorable towards their girlfriend. I tell them to treat their girlfriend in a way that means they can look her father in the eye and say, I've treated your daughter with honor. And I say to them, tell your girlfriend that you want to honor her. Tell her that you are fond of her and that you respect her so much that you don't want to dishonor her. I tell them to think about what might happen if they don't end up getting married, even though that might be their plan in going into this. It doesn't always work out. If it ends up that she marries someone else, treat her in a way that, you're, that, that, that her future husband and her have been honored, so that nothing will adversely affect their future marriage. Treat her with honour, I say, and she will feel safe and cherished and truly loved. Isn't it a beautiful thought? Of course, the opposite of a holy and honourable life is there in verse five. It is passionate lust. I love the Bible for its straight talking. We often try to call it love. Let's call it what it is. It is lust. When we are sexually immoral, that's what it is. And, we, and when we are sexually deviant, we are lustful. Oh please, we all fail. I fail. Jesus made that very clear when he said anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. There's no pride from the pulpit. We all fail in this and it does not please God. Indeed, verse five, to be sexually immoral is to live more like a heathen than a Christian. It's not a life that pleases God. Uh, It is as if you do not know God, end of verse five. And verse six, it is to wrong others and take advantage of them. Uh, Sexual immorality is often dressed up in the language of love, but uh, the bare truth is sexual immorality is a failure to love God, verse five and six, or to love your neighbor, verse six, because it is to take advantage of your neighbor. So if you're not married and having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you are taking advantage of them, taking from them what is not yours. So again, in this excellent little book, I read it this week, it really is very, very good, The Porn Problem by Vaughan Roberts. He writes this, sex is for pleasure, yes, but it also operates as a kind of glue that binds a couple together in their lifelong one-flesh union. You might say that sex is the body language of lifelong commitment. We're all familiar with body language. You shake someone's hand, it's an expression of friendship. You kiss them on the cheek and it's an expression of affection. You have sex with them and you are saying, at least you're meant to be saying, I love you and I'm completely committed to you for life. That's very helpful, isn't it? Sex binds people together. So when you have sex with someone who isn't your spouse, you're taking advantage of them, binding them to you, giving you control over them when you haven't committed yourself to them in marriage. I hardly need to say how having sex with someone else's spouse is not love. It is, verse six, to wrong others. When you do that, you're wronging your spouse if you're married and your children, and you're wronging their spouse and their children, and you're actually wronging them for the same reason that that quote just said. Sexual immorality masquerades as love. It is lust, verse five. It promises delight. It actually wreaks havoc. It causes pain. And it is a thoroughly selfish thing to do. As indeed is pornography. It is to wrong others. It is to take advantage of them. Again, I commend uh, Tim Chester's book to you as he explains very clearly how the porn industry projects happy, well-adjusted people enjoying what they're doing when the reality is quite different. Uh, So Tim Chester writes, the reality is that all participants in porn movies are frequently on drugs to dull the pain. It is common for women to vomit between shoots. Let me read some more from this book on this point. Uh, Shelley Lubben is a former porn actress now committed to helping women in the industry. Her organisation, the Pink Cross Foundation, has compiled a video. It's a sequence, a sequence of still photographs of porn actresses and actors. Each, each, over each picture comes words of explanation. Haley Page died from possible murder and drugs in 2007. Savannah died from self-inflicted gunshot wound in 1994. Christy Lynn drove at 100 miles an hour and died in a car accident in 1995. Chloe Jones died from liver failure due to alcohol and drugs in 2005. Anastasia Blue died from suicide overdose July 19th, 2008. Eva Lux died from heroin overdose in 2005. Taylor Summers was murdered during a bondage scene. On and on it goes for over seven minutes. 82 porn stars in all, just some of the hundreds who've died in tragic circumstances. He writes, it's very common for women involved in porn to have experienced sexual abuse as children or to have had abusive or distant or absent fathers. They're desperate for male approval and this desperation is exploited by the porn industry. Ex-porn star Amber told Craig Gross how girls are coerced and set up for a shoot. When they show up, there are six guys instead of one. The producers harass the girls if they refuse to continue. And these young girls, explains Amber, are going to do it because they're so insecure about themselves and they let these people take advantage of them. Look, using porn is, verse six, to hurt others and take advantage of them. If you did not use it, there would be no industry. And so Paul Paul pulls no punches here. Halfway through verse six. The Lord will punish men, that's men and women, for all such sins as we've already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live holy lives. See, uh, beware if you have an attitude that says, I'm a Christian, God will forgive me. You have been called to a holy life. It is very dangerous way to live if you live that way. And it says, the Lord really has not captured your heart. Verse one, the Christian should want to please God. Verse seven, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And so to reject this instruction, verse eight, is not to reject man, but God. God who gives us the Holy Spirit, verse eight. Please see the importance of that last phrase. The Holy Spirit is given for us to live what? Holy living, holy lives. That is why he's called Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to be self-controlled. So many of you will know Galatians chapter five. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Fruit of the Spirit. Holy Spirit strengthens me to live self-controlled living. Holy Spirit enables me to live a holy life. How does that that verse begin? The fruit of the Spirit is love. So the Holy Spirit gives me real and genuine love for others so that I don't take advantage of them or wrong them, as it says back in verse five and six. That ought to be a great encouragement. I know it's hard hitting this, but that ought to be a great encouragement. God is not asking us to live out something that is impossible for us to live. He gives us the ability, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit to live a holy life. God gives us all the resources we need to live in a way that pleases him. So you see, for the Christian who says, I long to please the Lord, you can. If you're stuck in this cycle of, uh, you know, some sort of sexual immorality, please seek help. Together, we want to walk with you in it. And uh, you can please the Lord. You don't have to be stuck in it. So be holy in sex. Secondly, be loving in work, and this is much more briefly, verses nine to 12. Now this section, verses nine to 12, being loving in work, also springs from the prayer back in chapter three. So look back with me to chapter three, verse 12, if you will. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. You see, it's a very simple, brilliant prayer, A prayer that the Thessalonians was love each other and everyone else. So love Christians and everyone around you. And that is precisely what Paul writes about in chapter four, verses nine to 12. You can see that when you look at verses nine and 10. Verse nine, now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Love, love, love love once again we see the Thessalonians are living as they should they are loving one another verse 9 and indeed part of the reason why they are loving one another again in verse 9 is they were taught to love they were taught by God to love one another it's lovely that isn't it it's not something Paul had to teach them they just they kind of knew it instinctively I remember when I first became a Christian, I was working in Bedford at the time and on one of my lunch breaks, I was wandering around a shop and I saw a shop shop assistant came up to me and said, uh, you know, can I help you? And I saw that he was wearing a a fish badge on his lapel and I asked him, are you a Christian? And he said he was and uh, we immediately had this bond. I'd never seen him before. As far as I know, I've never seen him since. We had this bond together. No one had taught me, you better love Christians. I just did. That's verse nine, isn't it? taught by God to love each other. And verse 10, the Christians in Thessalonica really did love all the Christians in Macedonia. And yet we see exactly what we saw in verse nine. They are living it out, but end of verse 10, Paul encourages them to do it more and more because you never arrive when it comes to living the Christian life because you've never done enough loving. Keep loving them. And specifically what Paul then goes on to do in verses 11 and 12 is tell them to love by the way they work. Uh, you can see that really uh, in verse 12. You see verse 12, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you'll not be dependent on anybody. Two things then, work in a way so that you win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on others. Firstly, working in a way That will win the respect of outsiders. One of my colleagues told me this week that when they were at university, they wondered how writing essays would possibly glorify God. Their dad very wisely said to them, if you work hard and get your essays in on time, if you don't cut corners in your work, that will be a great witness to your colleagues and lecturers. See, the way we work has an impact on others. It gains the respect of others. Uh, Let me do a negative example. illustration of that, when I was working in the newspaper industry, I was the only Christian in a workforce of over 400 people. I prayed that another Christian would join me in the company. My prayer was answered. And while this person was very vocal about their Christian faith, which was kind of good, they were not a great worker, which was not very good. And people were soon complaining about them. And so they didn't get the respect of outsiders. See, the quality of our work matters. It wins the respect of outsiders or not, verse 12. And to win the respect of outsiders is to love them for when they respect us, they are more likely to listen to us when we tell them about Jesus. In fact, if we don't have their respect, they won't listen to us at all, will they? And second, we're to work hard so that end of verse 12, we won't be dependent on others. Now, you might remember back in chapter two, verse nine, Paul modeled this while he was in Thessalonica. He worked so hard so as not to be a financial burden on other Christians. And I think, again, that's really helpful for us. Uh, Perhaps the culture here was one of laziness. I don't know. That isn't our problem. Most people here work far too many hours. Uh, But it could well have been that in Thessalonica, they were a bit lazy. Uh, And uh, he's saying here, you need to work hard to earn money for yourself. You see, verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands so that verse 12, end of verse 12, you will not be dependent on anybody. You see, Christians are to support others in need, but people can take advantage of that, can't they? I think of a a situation in a previous church I was in a woman fell on hard times and a lovely, generous Christian woman took her in, helped her back on her feet. But years later, it was years later, she continued to support this generous Christian woman. Uh, t- sorry, she continued to take support from this generous Christian woman. She made no attempt to get work, lived rent free, and basically took advantage of the kindness of another. That's not loving. So Paul says, verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands just as we told you. Work hard. Pay your way if you can. And you see how he talks about minding your own business. How does that link with working hard? Well, I wonder if you've noticed that largely when you work hard, you do mind your own business because it's my experience that people who poke their noses into other people's business are often people who have too much time on their hands. You notice that? Well, that's not loving, is it, if you poke your nose into somebody else's business? But if you're working hard, you have time to do that. Very practical, isn't it? Well, then, sex and work, two issues that dominate our lives day by day. Next week, we'll think about death, something that's always hanging over us. But for now, be encouraged to be holy in sex and loving in work. And as we do that more and more, it will please the Lord, which is or should be our great desire. And our motivation, well, it should be there just to please him, but of course he is our great example. The one who himself lived completely holy living, the Lord Jesus. And the one who out of love for us worked hard by eventually dying on a cross to bring about our salvation